and welcome back to another installment of Hazmatician Chronicles. I hope everybody's been keeping safe out there and just trying to maintain wearing the proper PPE, heeding the government's warnings, following your agency's warnings, and following any memos or anything that have come out about keeping your you and your crew safe and whatnot, and your in your vehicles disinfected and around the station disinfected. Uh, this is basically going to be our COVID-19 update number two, this installment. But uh, just, the, you know, a few things we're going to go over. I mean, this pandemic's been going on for quite a few weeks now, and the, the information is changing constantly, whether it's coming from the coming from the presidential press conferences to what's updated on the CDC website to what's updated on your county Department of Health or your state Department of Health website. So the numbers are constantly changing. So the current numbers right now, as of April 25th, 2020, from the CDC website is here in the United States, 928,619 confirmed COVID-19 cases, and we have 52,459 deaths related to it. Here in Florida, our numbers are as follows. We have 31,528 total. These are confirmed COVID-19 cases. And we are at 1,074 deaths here in the state of Florida. Now, if you look at the Florida Department of Health website, you can see how they break down of residents, non-residents, things like that. And, and they kind of break down with how they get their totals. But that's what we're at right now is at 31,528 total positive cases of COVID-19. So over the past few weeks, again, I've been just kind of monitoring it, following what my agency wants us to do what other agencies have been wanting people to do, people that have been writing into me, asking me, are you doing this? What do you think on this for disinfecting, PPE-wise, and all that? And for the most part, it seems that everybody, at a minimum right now, is wearing an N95 and goggles on every single emergency call, regardless if the person is been screened by your 911 dispatch center or you've screened them properly by maintaining your, your distance away from them while questioning them and seeing if they do meet the criteria of a COVID-19 or even just flu-like symptoms too, because they go hand in hand, basically. So at a minimum, I'm, I'm proud to say that from what I've been hearing, from what we're doing where I work, and just the, here in the state and, and everywhere else that people have contacted me about, minimum is N95. And that, that's, that's just great to hear that everybody's gone to that. The other thing too is maintaining that social distancing, wearing masks out and about when you're running errands, going to the grocery store, wherever you're going, fueling up your car according to the CDC recommendations, which, you know, a lot of people, if you're not wearing an N95, the one thing you have to remember is the surgical mask. It is something. It is a barrier. Or if you wrap a shirt or a bandana around your, your uh, face or one of those sun buffs, that's something. That is a barrier of some kind. I mean, it's not rated to obviously stop microbes, really, but it will, you know, probably stop microbes to a point. So one thing that I've clear, clarified for quite a few people is the surgical mask is basically to keep you from spreading something to somebody else, like coughing on them, seizing on them by accident or whatnot. The N95 is worn to help protect you from contracting something. So a surgical mask is worn to prevent you from giving the uh, infection to somebody. And then an N95 is there to protect you from contracting because those are rated and they are, because uh, normally we used to wear N95s only when we had like a possible respiratory isolation situation with patients that it might be positive for tuberculosis. So, but now it's, you know, for everything like this, the CDC recommendations for disinfectants is still the same. Um, 70% or higher isopropyl alcohol. Uh, they did say initially that if you have a, at least a 60% isopropyl or an alcohol content 
in a hand sanitizer, that's okay. But anything for disinfectant purposes, 70% or more. And you can go on the CDC website. And when I post this podcast, I'll put the link to the CDC website in regards to the list of disinfectants and basically what their their mode of action is of why they are a disinfectant. What they do basically to render that surface or whatever you're spraying down, the microbial action of that chemical or that disinfectant in general, what it does to kind of basically kill the virus or kill bacteria or bacterial spores on it. Now, you just have to remember the kill times. So if you have your disinfectant, uh, you know, whether it's like a Lysol or another kind of commercial grade disinfectant, just read the label. That's very important that everybody knows to do that. I know it says like on, on a Lysol or Clorox wipe or a spray bottle says kills 99.9% of germs. Well, I want to know what kind of germs it's going to kill because they label it. They put they list every kind of germ it's going to kill, or at least the family of the germ. They can't list every single one. There's thousands of them out there, millions. But at least we can have an idea of what family we're getting at, okay? So one thing that I, I always tell everybody is if you're dealing with any disinfectants, if you can read the fact that it's a tuberculocidal, you're good. It'll kill everything. Just like going back to that 10% bleach solution that I talked about in the update number one for the COVID-19 podcast is that's great. Soak it down. But the thing is with bleach, it's corrosive. So if there's certain kind of surfaces or plastics or things like that, especially PPE, you want to try to avoid using the bleach if you're going to try to reuse the PPE again, because that's the problem because it's corrosive. It might start to break down and cause a degradation factor to kick in for that particular you know, suit that you're wearing that you want to try to save and, and have for the next call or for the next shift or whatever. But if you know for a fact that you're just going to be throwing stuff away after the fact, after you doff it, after dealing with a COVID-19 patient, then whatever, you know, it's a moot point. You spray it down with bleach and throw it away. It's over. But if you're going to try to save this stuff, you just got to have to know maybe bleach might not be the best for it. There's other disinfectants that don't break down the material, the plastic, and aren't as corrosive, but they do the disinfectant job. So you just have to know and read the manufacturer's guidelines and the label basically in any kind of like plastic suit or hazmat suit that you're doing. The one thing too that has been coming out is certain agencies and people have been writing in and telling me that their agency is now using UV light to help kind of disinfect some of the N95 mask for reuse, um, you know, certain pieces of equipment that can actually handle that UV light they're putting in little containers with that mechanism in there with the UV light and basically putting it on for, you know, five, 10 minutes and then set it and forget it kind of thing. Walk away when the timer goes off or the light goes off on the box or whatever the devices that you have, they come and take their N95 or whatever they disinfected with it. and They call it a day. So it's just kind of adding to the fact of making everything somewhat safer and trying to prolong the PP as much as we can, because I know we are getting PP shipped out. But if you do go online to try to buy any kind of gloves or disinfectant, a lot of it's still listed as unavailable. So yeah, we're getting it in a trickle effect in a roundabout way. We're getting that effect of we're ordering it, they are releasing it, they are making it, and but it's just not as plentiful as it was before a pandemic, obviously, because you know we didn't really think this way to stock up on disinfectants and gloves and masks and all that. But you know, hopefully the the stockpile will be coming around a little bit more and get everybody PPE and the disinfectants that they need. Uh, another thing, too, is the disinfection of the stations along with the apparatus. The one thing about the station is a lot of people are saying that they're they're buying paint sprayers. They're actually converting some of their SCBA bottles and their air manifold for like their you know pneumatic tools or pneumatic drills and, and whatnot and extrication equipment that they use an air bottle on and converting it to a basically a disinfectant sprayer. 
which is great. It's quite innovative. You know, I mean, obviously it's not just used for pneumatic tools on extrication or, or a tech rescue type call, but it's obviously can be used for converting something into a sprayer to kind of disinfect the, the station in general, the trucks, the equipment. So you just have to be aware of what can we put in that sprayer? What can it tolerate? Again, disinfectant wise, the chemical properties of it to make sure that if it's like bleach, you want to make sure that that sprayer can have that because you don't want that corrosion aspect to kick in and, and damage any of your equipment too, especially if it accidentally leaks out and gets into the you know the main bottle or the main air manifold for that and that's out of service and you know now you have a prolonged maintenance kind of thing going on with equipment. But I think the fact that the fire service is usual and the first response community and the healthcare community is thinking, I guess as they say, the outside the box saying and taking things that we can, you know, normally use on for one thing and then we're turning it into use on something else, which is keeping us safe. One thing that uh, I've seen a lot on, I've read a lot on that I've seen a lot of posts online about is a lot of people are using the hydrogen peroxide, which is which is great. And again, on that link I'm gonna attached to this episode when I post it from the CDC website, they do list hydrogen peroxide and what the mode of action is for the microbial activity of killing it and rendering those, you know, viruses and bacteria in inert, basically, by killing them. That's one thing that I'll post on there too. So you can have something to reference if you haven't already. So, but it, it's something that, you know, it's a good read, you know, it just kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea of what alcohol will do to a, a virus or a cell or what hydrogen peroxide will do or, uh, Peracetic acid, things like that are all listed on there. The other thing, too, about the pandemic and, and what we're doing with our PPE and, and running these calls and whatnot is a lot of the, and those those of my EMS listeners out there, my paramedics, my EMTs and whatnot, the invasive procedures that we normally would do on a non-pandemic situation, like intubation, nebulized treatment, CPAP for people that are in congestive heart failure, pulmonary edema, things like that. A lot of agencies and, and just kind of talking to people on, you know, different forums and whatnot online, uh, most agencies have suspended any invasive procedures that could create an aerosolization of particles from the airway, aka nebulized treatments, CPAP, innovation. How are we going to handle people that are in just having, like I said in the last update, people still need to be treated for asthma. Still, People still need to be treated for pulmonary edema because of complications of congestive heart failure. People still need to have that treatment done. And it may not even be related to COVID, but the fact is that we're treating everybody as if they have COVID just to protect us and try to like, you know, again, straighten that curve out, as they say. But we still need to have an, a, a backup plan. And a lot of agencies, uh, people, you know, from other areas of the country, too, have let me know that if they can get an IV right away, they're doing the meds through IV, such as like a corticosteroid, solumedrol, they're given through IV. If it's an asthma attack, they can give, you know, epi 1 to 1,000 sub-Q as long as they're not over 50 and they don't have a cardiac problem. Things like that, if people have been contacting me about letting me know that's what they're doing with their agency. Again, that's that's great. We're still doing the, the breathing treatment, but we're not doing the nebulized breathing treatment. We're treating them through IV instead, and that doesn't create any aerosolization or any potential impact on us as first responders taking care of the patient. The other thing, too, is if you are working with any kind of CPAP or you're doing innovation or whatnot, or just even a blind insertion of like a King Airway if you're not doing innovation. If your agency is able to get a hold of the HEPA filters that you click onto the end of those tubes, then that's again, another barrier that's, you know, they're made to catch bacteria and viruses that are in the airway. 
that might be another backup plan if you haven't looked into that at your agency. Just something to kind of look online about and then see what what's out there. I know our agency, we have them now, so that that's great. So we can do a little bit more procedures because we have that HEPA filter now when it comes to advanced airway type stuff, which is fantastic. Like I said, we still got to innovate people. We still got to treat. We still got to take control of the airway if we're able to. So just something to think about. But that's kind of been like the trend that I've been seeing over the past couple of weeks. A lot of agencies are suspending all heavy duty invasive airway or any kind of nebulized treatments for airway stuff. Uh, it's just the world we live in right now. And, and I'm sure once everything kind of I guess returns back to normal. I loosely use that term normal. Okay. Because yeah, everything might open back up. Shops are going to open. Bowling alleys are going to open and gyms are going to open restaurants and whatnot. We're always going to have this kind of sense in our mind of what's the next super bug. Are we going to have another pandemic a few months from now or a few years from now? So we're always, I don't know if we can really say we're going to be getting back to normal like we did pre COVID-19, but uh, maybe it's just more of uh, a lot more of awareness with what's going on now with these super bugs and, and these pandemics that can really bring a society and, and an economy to its knees, really. The other thing that's been um, brought to my attention, uh, aside from like the UV light, is some people have let me know that their agency has purchased an ozone sterilizing machine. And ozone, ozone's very, very unstable. It's a very unstable gas. And, and it's called triatomic oxygen. So O2, like what we're breathing normally right now, is O2. This is called O3. Ozone is naturally occurring. It occurs up in the atmosphere, up in the really high parts of the atmosphere to protect the earth from UV light. So back a long time ago, a few decades ago, there was that problem with the hole in the ozone layer and then a lot more heat and UV light was coming through. So now it's basically, I guess, closed up and, and everything that was from reduction in pollutions and whatnot. Up there, it's perfectly fine. It's a, it's a force field, if you will, protecting us from UV light from the sun. But down here, when we're at the ground level, where all living life is in the lower atmosphere, basically it's pollution. And that's what's causing people that live in really, really heavily populated cities and areas that have a lot of pollution, the respiratory problems, the asthma, things like that, because they're breathing in that ozone, that O3. So now we're buying machines and machines are available that you can purchase and disinfect with them. The problem is though, why I'm kind of harping on this one, and, and I have a I have a chemical bulletin that I'm going to post on our Facebook page after I post this podcast episode, show you the importance and, and just give you a little more reference, the importance of heeding the warning of the manufacturer of that ozone sterilizing machine that your agency might purchase, the times when that machine's active, like if you put it inside of a, a, a fire truck or an ambulance or something like that, you got to follow the times. You should have signage on the outside saying, do not open doors for 30 minutes. After 30 minutes, vent for like another 30 minutes or whatever the manufacturer says. Obviously, I'm just throwing numbers out there, but it's very important because when you are in that O3 environment, it is highly unstable. And here's the thing, O2, what we're breathing right now, odorless, clear, O3, it's pale blue with a distinctive pungent smell right there. That tells you that we're dealing with some oxidation and all that. I've had the question of, well, how does O3 work? How does it disinfect? Well, when you have O3 and it's being created by this machine right here at ground level, it's basically a chemical reaction between oxides of nitrogen and the volatile organic compounds, VOCs. And that's giving you your O3 environment. But the thing is, the environment of O3 is it is oxidizing. So the goal with that is it's actually unstable in the sense of 
it has all these free radicals moving around. And free radicals, you know, our body's always getting attacked by free radicals constantly throughout the day. All right. And that's why, you know, people say, oh, eat foods with antioxidants, vegetables, fruits, all that to fight off these free radicals. Well, when it's disinfecting, it's using free radicals and oxidation properties to kill any bacteria or viruses or anything. So because it's floating around and how unstable it is, it's looking to try to balance itself. So it's latching onto these viruses and these germs and these microbes and everything in this like small compartment. We'll say we're using it for an ambulance, for example. And any bacteria or viruses back there, it's looking to stabilize itself with O3. So it's going to grab on to part of the, the cells of those microbes to try to balance itself. And in the process, it causes oxidation on that virus or that bacteria or whatever, that microbe, and it dies. So that's the disinfectant part of it. Not only is it used for healthcare facilities, but it's used for deodorizing air. So like water treatment plants, stinky places like that, sewers, it purifies water and it treats industrial waste. So it's not only just used for disinfecting in a healthcare facility, which on that note, do not use this inside of a building because it is so unstable. It can get in the HVAC system of that building, especially if you have a large office building or a hospital or a big fire station or even a small fire station. It doesn't matter. Just do not do it in the building because it can get in the HVAC. And if somebody didn't hear the warning that you were activating the machine and all of a sudden next they're in this environment, in this hot zone, we'll call it, in this IDLH of the O3, even though you're trying to disinfect the whole station, you might have just created more problems for people because it does affect the lungs and the target organs that this does affect, eyes, respiratory system, the exposure to the respiratory system can adversely affect the lungs and the breathing and the lung capacity, basically. So that's why you want to avoid that at all costs. So that's why we heed the warning if you put signage on the outside of a fire truck or an ambulance or something like that, that you have this O3 machine activated in. So again, I just wanted to point out to the sense of how important it is to follow the manufacturer's guidelines on this, because the one thing I don't want to ever hear about is somebody didn't listen to it or just forgot. And then all of a sudden they got exposed to it. They breathed it in. Now they're having lung problems that can be career ending or could shorten the life expectancy. So I, I, that'd be just horrible to hear about. And I'm just, you know, I want to just put the word out there and try to keep this as a reference for anybody who might forget one day. And then this clicks like, oh, I heard about O3. You know what? Let's let it vent out and let's clear the area and make sure we have our proper respiratory protection on and whatnot. The one thing about uh, about O3 is why it's so unstable is it's highly reactive too. Because remember, it's imbalanced. That's why it's unstable. So instead of having two oxygen molecules that are double bonded together, it has three. So you add that other bond to it. Now you're just making it even more agitated like it needs to balance itself. The thing about O3 is it does degrade and it does have a certain degradation time. So it, that's why we want to vent out any area that we operated this machine in to sterilize it or to disinfect it. We want to make sure we allow proper vent time to allow any kind of residual O3 that's like trapped in one of the little compartments or somewhere that that cross ventilation of the doors open on the truck or whatnot, that it's degrading and balancing itself out. So it basically renders itself back to O2. So O3 wants to try to get back to O2, but in the process, it's actually 
killing things in, in route with oxidation and free radicals and whatnot. So a little background on that. So just, again, I'm going to post the chemical bulletin. Just pay attention to it. One thing about it is it's heavier than air, has a molecular weight of 48. The IDLH is five parts per million. So it's very deadly. That's less than chlorine. Put it to you that way. Chlorine does not have a very high IDLH either. It has a very low one too. That makes it extremely deadly as well. So if that should just kind of clue you in that we are dealing with some nasty stuff here with uh, O3. It's not flammable, but it is a powerful oxidizer. So keep in mind, if you have any, if you have any kind of fire or any forms of combustion nearby in O3 environment, it's going to increase obviously the fire or the combustion. So just keep that in mind. Okay. It's the same thing as adding regular O2 to a fire. So read it over. Hopefully uh, you can print it out, talk about it with your crew at your station and whatnot. And it's just something that if your agency is thinking about purchasing an O3 machine, it's just, it's highly important that you remember the the danger of it and the toxicity of it if you're exposed to it. Or if you, your agency already has one, something to kind of just read on if, if you weren't aware of all the little ins and outs of like how toxic it actually is. The other thing too is electrostatic sprayers. That's another big thing. Uh, we use one in particular and it's uh and i'm not here to like name brands or anything like that you can and you can do your own homework on it but again i'm not you know endorsing any one of them they're they're all as long as i do the spray the disinfectant and it ionizes it so it has that electrostatic part of it then it'll get into all the little nooks and crannies of you know an ambulance a fire truck uh, it, you can use this in a fire station this is acceptable and it'll just clean up everything nicely and so, so a few things to think about uh, other than that it's just a matter of wearing your proper PPE, donning and doffing appropriately, disinfecting. And I know I talked about it on the update one. One thing that I just want to talk about on this update is, so if you're wearing level C attire and you're wearing a hooded coverall chemical suit with a APR on an air purifying respirator with a P100 canister attached to it, then you are in level C attire. And if you are going to be doffing your equipment because you've dropped the patient off at the hospital, you're done with the call, now it's time to get out of your, your PPE and begin the doffing process. Well, your partner or partners or crew or whoever, if they're with you, one person should be handling disinfecting you, spraying you from head to toe, being careful not to spray your actual canister. Because if you're on the fence about this person's not a positive, but we just took precautionary purposes by going into this level of PPE and I have the P100 on, you can take that canister off, that P100 canister, wipe it down with a disinfectant wipe and put it in the container that you have for the next call. Now, what I do personally is if it's a confirmed COVID-19 patient, they have positive testing for it, then that particular P100 canister goes right into biohazard and I throw it away and I get a new one. But if it's like, yeah, they're not confirmed, not really suspected, not really a, a high probability that they have it, but we just took the precaution, you can reuse your P100 again, just to prolong, especially if your department's kind of hurting for particular PPE, like P100s and 95s, things like that. So your person that's helping you out, we call them the shepherd. So they're going to spray you down, being careful not to spray your mask and all that. You can wipe that down with wipes. And you can gently wipe that down so you're not basically spraying any kind of like heavy duty corrosive type disinfectant on the mask because it'll degrade it and cause it to fail maybe. And if you get a structure fire later on, if you're a firefighter and, and you're, you do EMS and you're dealing with this, then that mask could potentially fail under heat conditions because of that corrosive degradation factor from the disinfectant. So anyway, follow the kill times on your disinfectant, drip dry. And then as your shepherd begins to doff you, the one thing that I cannot stress enough is as the shepherd helping your partner out of their PPE suit, please, please, please do not touch the inside of the suit. Because remember, if I'm in a suit, 
that's all clean because it's up against my body. It hasn't been exposed to the outside world where that COVID-19 patient is or whatever, or any kind of cross-contamination at the hospital or in the back of the ambulance. So that area touching my body inside the suit is clean. So when you come along as my shepherd to take me out of the suit, try to grab the suit from the outside, obviously, and kind of just peel it where the inside kind of faces up, but it's not being touched by you. And I can kind of wiggle out of it or pull my arm through or whatnot, depending on how you're doing it. So it's just try not to touch it because, yeah, you might have a fresh pair of gloves on, but we don't want to take that chance. And we want to build good doffing habits when it comes to this kind of PPE level that we're dealing with and not touching the inside of the suit because that's still my clean area if I'm the one in the suit. So just something to just try to catch yourself, take your time. Remember, yeah, you might not be on a hazmat team, but this is hazmat with biological agents that we're dealing with here. Hazmat, especially when we're donning and doffing, nothing is fast. Especially when we're doffing and we were dealing with somebody that was potentially a patient that has COVID-19 or I was in the vicinity or a facility that has confirmed COVID-19. Nothing is fast when it comes to hazmat, even especially doffing, because that's where the cross-contamination is going to occur. That's probably where the exposure will happen with the cross-contamination, more so because of the misstep during the doffing process. Not to say it can't happen when you're in the hot zone, as we say, and you're dealing with the patient or you're in that particular facility or area that has a high number of COVID positive people. But it's, you know, especially if you had one day your, your partner was off with the, disinfecting you and they missed a couple spots and that was where the COVID is on your suit. And next thing you know, it's cross-contaminated on you. That's what I'm getting at here. So you just want to take extra precaution, take your time, methodical, try not to touch the inside of the suit. Remember, that's my clean area still and then doff appropriately from there. If you have these suits at your station, have somebody go into it and follow the doffing procedure and just do a dry run with your crew. It'll just kind of build everybody like, okay, finally I've gotten to see this, how to doff properly, or we're doing this as a team. So if the whole crew is there at the hospital, then one person will be the shepherd. And then obviously the station officer will probably watch the entire doffing process and kind of walk the shepherd through it if they're kind of struggling or if they're getting a little mixed up or just kind of watch as a safety person to make sure that the cross-contamination isn't happening. So the whole crew can benefit from practicing and doing a dry run at the station, especially when the real deal comes about. So just something to think about. I just wanted to uh, definitely touch on that on this uh, installment here. Well, other than that, I think that's pretty much the update number two for the COVID-19 installments for Hazmatician Chronicles. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody that's out there and you're all doing a great job. Keep it up. Uh, I know we're limited on PPE, so just do the best you can. Please stay safe out there. I mean, it's one of those things where we have to watch each other's backs and not just us, but we have to watch the other healthcare providers that are out there, the nurses and whatnot and the doctors, but especially the nurses, because they're the ones that we're dropping the patient off to at the hospital. The buck stops at the hospital. I've said that a couple of times on different episodes, but it truly does. And uh, a nurse friend of mine was telling me the other day that the hospital that they work at, their hospital is only giving them very limited PPE for a 12-hour shift, especially if they're dealing with COVID patients. But that's how bad it is in these hospitals with the PPE. They either don't have enough and they're trying to ration it as best they can, or they do have enough and they're just hoarding it and they're just not giving the nurses what they need. And it's dear near to my heart because I have family members that are nurses and it just kind of bothers me when they are basically 
giving him some PPE, but basically saying, yeah, you're expendable to this point. And, and that's how I feel. And that's, you know, I'm not a nurse, obviously, but that's how I take it. Anyway, just, you know, thank a nurse when you're out there because they they are on the front lines just as the firefighters and the paramedics and the police are. Thank a police officer. I mean, they're they're out there, too. I mean, we're all on the front line, depending on your job. But some of us are more on the front line than others. So, I mean, it's, again, a community thing. And I just hope that everybody stays safe out there. Keep doing your PPE, donning and doffing, practicing it. Keep doing your social distancing. I, I know I probably sound like a broken record because every corner we turn they're in our face with this stuff and and it's good though because hopefully it just becomes muscle memory follow your agency's guidelines because they're they should be on it and be getting updated on this constantly and i know it's probably frustrating at some places where the memos are constantly changing but you know what though it's for the benefit of the agency and the community keep us safe because if an entire agency got sick or more than half of it got sick that's going to put a strain on neighboring agencies. That's going to put a strain on the community that you're there to protect and serve if you're not there to respond to the call. So again, don't get frustrated. It's a it's a learning process, not only just because, oh, they changed the memo again. It's for our benefit because something came down the, the, the pipe and they want to update us to make sure that we're safe. So just don't get frustrated and, and we'll weather the storm together of this. And I guess we'll come back to a new type of normal after this pandemic is worked itself out. And on that note, be safe out there. We'll see you on the next installment. Please stay tuned for the other podcast we do, Fire Department University. We got some good ideas coming up on that one, some good topics. Again, go back to kind of like a little bit of history on some fire department stuff. So just kind of stay tuned for that. We're still doing the research on that one. But um, we got some more Hazmatician Chronicle topics that are going to be coming up in the very, very near future. So stay tuned for that. We'll see you on the next one. Take care now.